Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Today, I'm taking you back to a conversation I had with my friend Scott McCain on factors of iconic performance. What if standing out in a crowded field is no longer enough? How do you rise above noise? How do you become distinct? What does it take to become truly iconic? I think you're going to get a lot out of my conversation with Scott McCain. Well, I am thrilled today to be here to talk to my friend, Scott McCain. Scott has actually founded the, well, I shouldn't even say this because he really talks a lot about distinction. And it's not just about founding the Distinction Institute. He has the distinction of being the guest on this blog of the person we've interviewed more than anybody else. Did you know that, Scott? I didn't know that, really? That is really true. He is an incredible speaker. If you have not heard him speak, he's a speaker's roundtable member, regularly uh, hits the top. Everybody that hears Scott is like, wow. And you will always hear those comments. But he is an, also an author of many, many books that are fantastic. We interviewed him for his book on Taxi Terry, but he has many books. But the book that we're talking about today is his best book yet. And that book is Iconic. Scott, I just want to talk a little bit about Iconic. What does it mean to be Iconic? What does an Iconic organization look like? Skip, as as I talk about in the book, I I was challenged by some of my previous clients that had gone through the distinction path. Okay, what comes next? And, you know, it occurred to me that I had kind of left something out as as I was talking about distinction. and, And that is, Distinction means you stand out in your field, but there are other organizations that we know that transcend their own individual industry. Uh, To use the cliches, you know, Southwest Airlines is more than just a distinctive airline. They're an incredible business, Starbucks and others. So then I got thinking, okay, are there other examples of smaller businesses, ones that we don't hear about very much, that also transcend their category? And so that became for me the definition of iconic, is that you don't only stand out in your field, but you're really so good. You know, you're not just their favorite grocery store. You're their favorite place to buy anything. You're not just their favorite restaurant. You're where they wish everybody had the kind of service that you have. And so I tried to isolate what were the things that made them stand out and what made them transcend that category. So that's that was kind of my definition, my working definition of what iconic. I like it. So I wonder some organizations probably shouldn't then perhaps try to be iconic. Is that true? Yeah, I I don't mean to sound like my old college professor in my logic class that I did not get a good grade in many years ago. But you can be distinctive and not be iconic. In other words, you can rise to the top of your industry, but not necessarily transcend your category. But you can't be iconic unless you're first distinctive. And so what organizations need to do first is to learn how to stand out and be unique in their own category but then when they want to raise the game, this, this is the ultimate level of distinction when you truly become iconic. So when leadership teams meet, you know, they're, they're reading your book. They're learning from you what it means to be distinctive. They're watching this. They're looking at this spectrum. They're saying, OK, maybe we even want to raise the bar and be iconic if that's the dream. What are a few of the steps that a leadership team would take to become distinctive, be deliberate about that strategic practice, and then ultimately becoming iconic? 
it starts with distinction. And part of this book, the beginning part is I review what we found in the research on what it takes to create distinction. And that's the four cornerstones, which basically uh, clarity, be very precise about what your differences are in the marketplace, creative, find an innovative way to approach the market, communication, leveraging the power of narrative to tell your story, and then a customer experience focus. What's it feel like to do business with us? How do we create those, those experiences? So I would suggest first for a leadership team, you isolate those four. How do we get more clear about our message? How do, how do we really determine what's going to separate us from competitors in a way that's meaningful for our customers? The interesting thing about innovation and creativity is it only takes one thing. It doesn't take, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater like we used to, you know, we traditionally think of creativity and innovation as being disruptive and chaotic. You, you can disrupt the market with just one simple good idea. Communication, my, you know, Skip, you and I have talked about this privately a long time about people tend to run from their own uniqueness. You know, we love to tell the Starbucks story. We love to tell the Apple stories, the Steve Jobs stories, but we don't become really proficient at telling our own stories. And we have to work on that. I've noticed on, on several of your blogs, talked with other authors and given your own insights about storytelling. And that's so important. And then finally, that experience. I mean, I addressed a group of surgeons and during the Q&A, they said, do you realize you can become a surgeon without ever taking a class on bedside manner? You can graduate from medical school. You can do that and never take it. And it's interesting to me because I started. There are some schools that you can get your MBA and never have a single class on the customer experience. Um, that is not surprising to some of us who have been on the other side. But, but then we wonder why these organizations can't retain customers, why they say our people, you know, our people are our greatest asset, but then they treat them like an expense. And so creating that experience becomes very, very important. So that's that's the first step. How, how do we do that distinctively? Then if we want to take it to a higher level, there are factors of iconic performance that are that are critical. And one that I emphasize from the start is the first of the five factors, and that is play offense. I'm a sports fan, and I've always heard the thing, defense wins championships, and we've assumed that cliche is true. And it's really interesting when you look at the statistics. The better offense wins the majority of the time. About 65% of the time, the team with the better offense is the winner, not the team with the better defense. And I see a lot of businesses of all sizes that their business plan is basically, let's look at what our competitor is doing and we'll try to do the same thing, only a little bit better. And that means the competition is defining your game. A thread that I found through every iconic business is that they played offense. They were aware of the competition, but they didn't base their approach on them. That's, That's so harder good. to do than it sounds, but it's, but it's one of the most important things you can do. It's so good. One of the mistakes in my book is letting others define you. And, and I think that is, that is so awesome to really think about it in a strategic way. You also talk about getting promise and performance right. And oftentimes something is wrong on one of those. Uh, do you see a certain part of that equation getting off track more often than another? Yes, in several levels, Skip. And, and to me, that's the most important part of the book is what you just identified, that, that customers really only judge us based on two factors, the promise that we make to them and the performance that we deliver based upon that promise. Now, that sounds very simplistic, but the more you drill into it, first of all, it's the promise the customer perceives we have made. 
And there might be some disconnections between what the customer perceives as the promise and what we think the promise really is. So we've got to get into that. But at the end of the day, what customers want us to do is exactly what we promised that we would do. They want it delivered as we promised when we said we would deliver it. That sounds very basic, yet ask yourself, how many places do you do business that they do exactly what they say? Now, if you look at that promise performance matrix, in other words, high promise, low promise, high performance, low performance, you end up with four categories of business. And you can have the laggards, low promise, low performance, think of Sears, you know, they didn't deliver much, but they didn't promise too much either. You know, they were the, no at bar. least you could, exactly, at least they were telling us the truth. <laughs> but then you get high promise, low performance, and there's no nice way to put it, nor should there be. These are just the frauds. These are the people that promise you anything to get you to sign. And then once you sign, they don't deliver. And there's a line and there's some debate about who originally said it, but the line is basically when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And frauds have kind of shown us who they are. But yeah, many times as customers, we think, yeah, but they'll come through for us or we'll give them another chance or, or whatever. And, and those are the people we need to run from. Interestingly enough, and this is the one that surprised me the most in the research was the low promise, high performance, because we hear so much about under promise over deliver. But there's some really interesting research that suggests that these are the manipulators. In other words, what we do is we intentionally sandbag, we under promise so that we can make ourselves the hero with the overperformance. Instead of really doing it with a commitment to the customer, we're trying to make ourselves look like a hero. And over a period of time, customers are smart enough to see through that. I found that very fascinating because we have always said, I'm, I've been guilty of it, oh, under, under promise, over deliver. Reading that part of your book and the research to me was, was incredibly fascinating because they do figure it out. And that's not really what we mean when we say over deliver, right? That's not over delivering. That's just doing, that's table stakes really for that business. So when I read it again to make sure I understood it, it was very, very fascinating, the nuance of that, because you're not doing it to manipulate, you're doing it to serve. And if you do it that way, it's a different mindset. But the next two parts of your iconic steps were more surprising, I thought, than others. And, and one was stop selling. What does that mean? To be candid, I mean, no organization can cancel all sales. That's not what I'm saying. But when you take the approach, for example, I, I was looking at some of the groups that I think is iconic. And, you know, I can promise you we are not going to turn on the television over the Super Bowl or, or any other major event and see an Apple commercial selling Macs, stack them cheap, sell or stack them deep, sell them cheap. You know, we got a fire sale on them. Come on. You know, uh, it's just not going to happen. Disney is not going to say, hey, and now we're cheaper than Universal. You know, that's not how they sell. What happens is they build relationships. They find a way through the power of their promise and performance to attract us. Uh, the late, great Jim Rohn in personal relationships always said the success you attract will always be more significant than the success you pursue. And I think the same thing is true with customers in business. The customers that we attract by who we are and what we stand for and our, our core values are always going to be more significant to our business than the ones that we've had to put flyers in their mailbox and cut the price and do those traditional things. So to me, stop selling means that we focus on the experience that we create that creates relationships with customers. And 
you know, it's not that Amazon uh, you know, doesn't sell, but how they sell through the recommendation. You know, your friends purchased this. You might be interested too. other people through suggestion and through relationships to me is the future of business. But the other thing is too, skip when, when we look at the fundamental shifts from transactions to subscriptions that we see in the marketplace now. You know, Porsche is is one of our clients. They are pioneering that you pay them a monthly fee and then you can just come get different cars while you're a part of that subscription program. Who would have thought that automobiles would have gotten to the point of subscriptions? But you only have that when you're not trying to close the sale or close that transaction that you stop selling and start building these ongoing relationships. I love that model, too. And it's going to be the wave of the future. It's happening. I, I think that's fascinating. One of the other things that's so interesting in so many of these seminars and people talking about sales and we think positive and be positive and it's all positive and positive mental attitude and all of that and be motivational. And then you say, go negative. I love that. I love that. Talk a little bit about that. Be negative for us, Scott. <laughs> no. Well, no, wait a minute. (laughs) The funny thing is, and and Skip, I got to tell you, it was one of the things that really surprised me when I was researching for the book was that that was a common theme. And part of what struck me was that too many times in business, you've seen it with managers. I've seen it with managers. If a colleague, if an employee brings them negative information, they presume the employee is negative. We have built this whole culture around you know, let's stay positive, which can, unfortunately, you know, the pendulum can swing too far into don't bring me bad news. Or if something bad happens, I've got a customer that complains. Let's do what it takes to make that customer happy. But then we never fix the process that created the negativity in that customer to begin with. And, you know, we have all these scores about, you know, would you recommend us to family and friends? Which to me, Yes, you have to have some metrics in there. I totally believe in the metrics, but it's asking things that, you know, would you consider recommending? You're not able to track whether they do or not. You're asking, would they? I think a better question is, you know, what's irritated your customer? Where are the points of friction? What is, pardon the language, what's pissed them off? When we identify that, now we can fix the process and not just satisfy, band-aid what happened to the AP specific particular customer. So good. So good. The root cause. I'm always looking for the root cause. Otherwise, you're just moving past it and it'll keep coming back again like bad weeds. So absolutely agree with that. Reciprocal respect. Talk a little bit about that. Well, Skip, how many leaders have you seen, and I've, I've seen them as well, that want the respect of their team, but yet they don't express a reciprocal amount of respect to the team? We've heard in business, you know, stuff rolls downhill, you know, and if you're at the bottom of that's not reciprocal. And what we have today, if if you think about it in our personal lives, the relationships are reciprocal. If I ask you about someone in your life and you said, oh, they're an acquaintance and I went to them and asked about you, they probably wouldn't say, oh, Skip's my best friend in the world. They would probably say, oh, Skip, he's an acquaintance of mine. Great guy. Right. You've told me about you know, best friends. If I went to them, they would say, Skip is one of my best friends. So, and many of us, you and I have, have chosen with respective partners to make 
a lifetime monogamous commitment. We'd better hope that's reciprocal, right? I mean, that it works both ways. Why would we assume that in business, loyalty and respect can be higher one direction than it is the other? It's not. That's a fallacy that we've created in business that the CEO or the leader is supposed to be respected at a higher level than the people on the front line. And one of the most tragic shows, people love this show, and I, I just think it's a tragedy every time I see it, is Undercover Boss, where the boss goes out and is on the front line and, oh, my goodness, has an epiphany. I had no idea that my frontline people are experiencing this. And people think that's a wonderful show. And I, I think, how do you get to the point that you don't know what's happening? You have, you have so little respect for the people on the front line. You don't know. You have no idea. Scott, it's so funny. I also think about the people who I've had people tell me, oh, well, you should try out for that one day. And I thought and I've asked, hey, could I do this? Or like, no, everybody would know you. It wouldn't work. <laughs> I, I always wonder, like, how, how is it that these people don't know who the leader is that even if you put the fake must? I mean, really, you don't know who that is? I, I find that funny. That That's funny to get your take on the show. Well, you know, I can't imagine that Tim Cook could put a wig on and a disguise and go in an Apple store and make it five minutes without everybody going, why is with the camera crew? That funny disguise? I, it's but, not like he's just walking in, right? You have the whole camera crew. I mean, yeah, really? the, yeah, the camera crew. Wouldn't you go, wait a minute, a camera crew watching this guy load a truck. Now, wait a minute. What's Something's what, up. It just, to me, it's a tragedy every week. And <laughs> that reciprocal respect is something that is found. Uh, think about how people at Southwest Airlines legitimately both grieved and celebrated the life of Herb Kelleher when he passed away here recently. That was real. You know why? Because they knew he was real. And that's the kind of, and I, Southwest is, is an overused example, I know, but that's how it became one. Well, it's a good one. I, I, I was flying uh, the very day and the spontaneous emotion that they shared was was very real, as you said. Good because example. Herb was real, right? I mean, he got out there with him and he showed respect to the people, you know, throwing bags on planes and taking care of people on the plane and flying the plane. And that's what we're seeking. I always wonder, though, I mean, it's authenticity. And I, I can you teach authenticity? Can you teach it? What's the old line? Uh, there was there was an old line that the Zig used to use with speakers. He said, you know, be sincere whether you mean it or not. <laughs> Joking, of course, that yeah. you couldn't do that. I, I don't know, Skip. I, I don't know that you can. I, I think that you can help people understand its importance and maybe they find their own way there. That's a good way to put it. Well, we could talk on and on and on. And I, I want people to jump in and, and read this book, Iconic. It is and really, they need to get it with Create Distinction and read them as a unit because they both, as you mentioned, have themes that are important to the other. But I just want to end with one different question because people that follow you may know you from your speaking and writing and all of the different things that you do, the Distinction Institute, or from the distinction of being on here more than anyone else. It may be that people don't know that you are a great music lover, that you're passionate about music I'll see your posts and watch where you are. You're friends with many people who are iconic in the music industry. What can we learn from an iconic band in terms of being iconic and uh, enduring over time? Do you have an example from the music business that you could share with us? What a great question. The first thing that 
pops into my head real quickly is uh, I spent last weekend, and as a matter of fact, spent a couple of days this coming week with my, my friends, the Oak Ridge Boys. When I was a teenager, I worked at this little radio station in southern Indiana, and my boss was a high school buddy of William Lee Golden, who is the guy in the Oak Ridge Boys with a long, white, flowing beard that's, you know, such an iconic personality. And met him when I was 15 and met the other guys and stayed in touch and stayed friends, good friends, uh, over the years. And I went to their show in Florida this last week, and you would have thought there were 20,000 people in the audience instead of 1,000. They bring it every time. And I asked them about it. We, we were talking about it. And the one thing they say is every night is opening night for that audience. If you and I go to Broadway, Hamilton has been on for years, but it's opening night for us. Right? I mean, we went to see Elton John a while back. If Elton would have walked out and said, hey, you know, I've done this a million times. I'm getting a little tired of it. I'm going to sing Rocket Man. We're going to call it a night. All right. We, we would have horrified. Right. Come on. We, we, we've saved. We, we. And I think sometimes we forget that in business, that if a customer walks in our store or if we're talking to them individually or if we're giving a presentation or whatever, even though we may have done it a million times, it's opening night for that customer, for that employee, for that reader, for that audience. And if we can remember that and make that commitment and get that mindset, because to me, the bands with longevity, just like the speakers and television personalities and anything else with longevity are the ones who really focus on making certain that every person understand that I'll make the commitment and I'll deliver for you every time. I've learned from that. It's been a key in my speaking business, Skip. I mean, at the end of the day, the next group I'm speaking to, you know, they hope I did well the last speech, but that's not their big concern. They don't care, right? They, they want me to here. do great for them. That's and, so good. And, and it's the same thing as a customer. It's the same thing in every business. And and if there's anything I've learned from the Oaks and others like that, that's been the big lesson. That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. That's great. Well, just to hear you say the Oaks, that right there makes the whole thing. The Oaks. I like it. <laughs> but it is it is great to remember that lesson and the lesson that all business is show business. So we want to thank you, Scott, for sharing with us what it takes to be iconic and really move up to be more distinctive. And I think everybody wants to stand out and do the best that they can and strive to serve in better and better ways. So thank you for sharing that with us. And it is a great book, really, truly is iconic. And we look forward to more, many more books that you have in you. But this one is really special to me. This one's really good. So thank you so much for it. Best wishes. Thanks for having me. Always great being with you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.